Take your Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 11, for those of you who haven't been with us in our study, Luke chapter 11. You know, sometimes when I, uh, when I go have my eyes checked, just like you do, there's a, uh, there are these posters on the wall that show the human eye, and you know, the, the intricate detail is actually quite fascinating. Some of you in that field, you know what I'm talking about, and when I'm sitting there looking at those charts and those posters and I'm looking at all the parts of an eye, I, the first thought that comes to my mind is that if this ophthalmologist or this optometrist or whatever the eye doctor is, if they don't, do not believe in the God of the universe, if they're not humbled by the natural revelation that they see in the human body, they're going to have a lot to answer for before the Lord because it's just so intricate and so amazingly uh, dynamic and detailed, and the design of it so intelligent and brilliant. It's an amazing thing. But then sometimes I read, you know, how the eye works, and, and of course through the years you, you, you can read all this stuff online, so it's quite fascinating. But what is interesting about the human eye is that for it to see anything, it has to process light, obviously. The human eye is a window through which light then comes, so it processes light, and vision begins, so the scientists tell us, and the physiologists tell us, it begins when the light is passing through the cornea portion of the eye, which does about three quarters of the focusing of the eye, and then the lens adjusts the focus, depending on the distance and color and those kind of things. So both of those things, the corneas work as it processes light, and then the the lens combine to produce the clear image that we see or our brain processes, this visual world. And so just like in a camera, the image on the retina is reversed. Objects above the center project to the lower part and vice versa. The information from the retina in the form of electrical signals are sent to the optic, via the optic nerve to the parts of the brain, which ultimately process the image and then allow us to see. And so photoreceptors are what they call them, and that's the part of the eye that receives the light. The problem, of course, is that the, the eye deteriorates, and there are all kinds of diseases that affect sight. You know them by their common names today, glaucoma, which is that transparent fluid inside the forward part of the eye. It doesn't drain normally. It starts to put pressure on uh, the eye on the inside. Then there's macular degeneration. So the inner surface, uh, the lining at the back of the eye, the retina functions like a little film in that camera. And the macula is part of the retina and it forms uh, that sharp image. And so degeneration breaks down that portion of the retina. And then there's something called retinitis pigmentosa, which is what we, we often call night blindness, a condition which brings degeneration of the retina and then the various ways that you, you deal with light. But probably one of the other most common to us is the cataract, and the cataract is quite interesting because the cataract clouds the lens of the eye so that light does not come through clearly and cannot be received and processed clearly. What's interesting about that is that that is precisely the analogy Jesus uses to speak of the inner spiritual life and how you receive truth as a human being. In fact, you'll notice in Luke 11, in verse 33, as Jesus gives a very familiar statement that we've heard him say on other occasions making different points, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. 
He's saying here that when you have a light and it's lit, your purpose is to light the whole house. You put it in some place where it can fill the whole house with light. That's obvious. Everybody sees that. But then verse 34, he changes it now to the eye. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. Literally, when your eye is healthy. When the inside of you or the eye, he's talking here about the spiritual eye, the heart, the inner life, when it is healthy, your whole body is full of light. And when it is bad or better translated evil, then your whole body is full of darkness. Darkness permeates. And so he goes on to say in verse 35, watch out, be careful that the light in you is not darkness, in you. He's talking about the spiritual analogy here. The eye of your body processes light so that you can see images. The internal spiritual eye of your body is your heart so that you can process truth when you hear it, the light of truth when it comes in. And he says, be careful because you could develop a blockage. You could develop a a, a spiritual cataract that blocks the light as it comes in. Similar to the conscience, when we talk about the conscience, the conscience isn't the law of God itself, but the conscience is like a skylight through which the sun shines to light up the house. If you gunk up the skylight or put mud on it or you don't clean it, the light doesn't come through as clearly. You don't see things as clearly. That's essentially how the conscience works in a spiritual sense inside of us. It it, uh, filters the light of the truth And when it's clear, the truth comes through very clearly. Well, in a similar way, the heart, as it receives truth, if it's a healthy heart, if it's receiving the truth, if it wants the truth, then the whole body, the whole life starts to permeate with truth. But if you have blockage, if you yourself are the the one who has put up blocks, something to cloud the lens through which truth comes, if you have pride If you're all about yourself, Jesus is going to make the point. You're in danger. Grave, grave danger. Now, you remember what happened if you're with us in our study. Jesus had just been accused by the Pharisees that when he casted out the demon, it was done by the power of Satan. And and he shows them the absurdity of their arguments. He shows them that's literally absurd because that would mean Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. It makes no sense that I would be for a better part of three years casting out demons by the power of Satan for Satan would be casting out his own strength and his own stronghold on human beings and people and souls, which is his ultimate goal. If he's deceived a soul and he has a soul and he's holding a soul, why would he for three years let someone like Jesus, if Jesus was really in league with him, cast that control out of that person and heal them so that they come to believe in the Messiah, the very thing Satan hates. It's absurd, the argument you're making. Now, having heard that, the crowd around starts to gather because, as you can see, the Lord is poking in the eye the leaders of Israel to show the absurdity of their accusations and that they just are plotting to kill him. And as that is ramping up, crowds start to gather because Jesus is going to drill down even deeper as he faces off with them. But having seen him display power over demons, some enthusiasts in the crowd would normally get excited and Jesus points out, or Luke points out, uh, a woman here to whom Jesus responds, who's a bit of an enthusiast. She is a woman in the crowd, likely a mother. And having seen Jesus behave the way he behaved, have the power he has, she bursts out 
and talks about truth. She talks about what is natural, however, rather than what is supernatural. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus makes the point in the crowd that truth is our treasure, not the natural conclusions that we might draw. Souls are at stake, not earthly lives, not earthly existence. Verse 27, while Jesus was saying these things, that is to say, while he was saying these things to the Pharisees that he just finished speaking about and warning them, While he was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now this is a woman who is understandable. We get it. She is passionate in the moment, caught up in the enthusiasm of just having witnessed Jesus' power over evil. And she She's witnessed several other things, that he's a man of conviction and courage, standing toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. She's also, no doubt, listened to the dismantling of their absurd argument about where his power comes from. So she is gravitating in his direction, and this is an outburst of admiration. It's a heartwarming sentiment. She's likely a mother, and she does exactly what Mary had said would happen when the prophecy was given to her that she would birth the Messiah. Mary said in Luke 1.48, all generations will call me what? Blessed. It was normal and particularly uh, normal for a woman, let let alone a mother, to see uh, a man like Jesus and to say, blessed is the mother who bore you because she gets the fruit and the enjoyment of seeing you with such clarity and such power and such divine favor. We understand that. All mothers want their sons and daughters to excel. All parents want their kids to excel. And when we see our kids exercising wisdom rather than foolishness, we get excited. Even if it's, it has nothing to do with, you know, spiritual things, just being wise in common sense things. We get excited about that. Why? We don't want them to be foolish. When we see that they have conviction, then we know they aren't easily swayed. We like that. You're not going to be easily swayed. In other words, it's quite natural for us to imagine those things about our kids and rejoice in them, just like this woman does. It's a natural thing to see courage in a young person. Oh, they're not going to be a coward. They're going to take a stand. I like that. When you see your kids take a stand, it's normal to be, what we say, proud of them. Not in an evil way, but we, we rejoice in, in their achievements and we bask in the joy of that. And then divine favor. I mean, who, who wouldn't want a son or a daughter to be experiencing the blessing of God. And in this case, Jesus is manifesting messianic power. This woman bursts forth enthusiastically to say, how blessed is your mother? Because she's got a son who has wisdom and conviction and courage and divine favor. But Jesus is going to tell her, look, those might be natural things and those might be true, but they are not the issue. Souls are at stake. Truth is our treasure And he's saying this in front of the Pharisees who were not letting truth in because they had spiritual cataracts. They could not see the truth, did not want the truth. And so here at the outset, Jesus even has to say to a mother, yeah, what you say is true. On a natural level, that's true. But there's something far greater and you need to think about that. And so verse 28, he says, on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. 
he takes her from a mother's natural reaction to, to a supernatural recalibration, really. A supernatural recalibration. By the way, on the contrary, is, is probably mistranslated. The word actually is two words stuck together. and it, it, it means I'm in agreement, but rather you should think this way. So in other words, yes, indeed that's true what you say, but there's something far more profound to think about. On the contrary is a little too strong. It's more like true indeed what you said, but you must understand this because this is far better. And then he says, blessed is, or blessed are, happy, fulfilled are those who hear the word of God, and then he adds this, and observe it. And I know you're thinking in your mind, obedience. That's true, obedience is included. But this is a particular kind of word that means to take it in, hold on to it, guard it, and keep it from any threats. That is this word, and in context it fits. Down in verse 35, Jesus is going to bring this point back home as as the bookend of this entire discussion. Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. So he began with a general statement to this woman, yes, indeed, blessed is my mother because she had the privilege of of being given the role of nurturing me on earth and, and God's calling me as the Messiah and my incarnation. Yes, she was blessed, indeed, but that's an earthly ministry. Souls are far more important and so I want you to remember that happy and fulfilled are those who take in the word of God and they keep it under guard, they safeguard it, they protect it from anything that would threaten it. And by the way, he means anything inside you that would threaten it. Not anything outside, that's true. You you keep error out from the outside but the only way to do that is to have a heart full of truth on the inside. Keep your heart protected as a clear receiver of the light of the truth. Keep the eye of your body clear and healthy. One commentator said, keep it safely in our own hearts as the most precious treasure that is faith and allow no contradiction or alteration of it. That's confession, end quote. So it carries the idea of obedience here, but there's an intensity to the idea that you're watchful so that truth is guarded and nothing comes between you and the truth. And so yes, the issue here is that the truest and highest fulfillment is not a natural relationship with Jesus, but a supernatural one. You can be his mother, and it is a blessed life. It was a blessed life for Mary, but a natural relationship to Jesus is nothing. A supernatural relationship to him is everything, and that's what you must treasure. Now, you know Luke's been saying this over and over again in his account of the life of Jesus. And Jesus has had his statements recorded in Luke like a string. It's just this bell he keeps ringing. Luke 8, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, uh, chapter 8, verse 8. In other words, if you have ears of faith, hearing the word in faith produces the lasting fruit. Chapter 8, verse 18, therefore take care how you listen. He'd said it then. Be careful what kind of ears you have for the truth. Chapter 9, verse 5, as for those who don't receive you, speaking of the disciples, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Why? Because they're not receptive. Their heart isn't open. They're not listening with ears of faith. Chapter 9, verse 35, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God himself said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him exclusively. Listen to him supremely. Listen to him and get everything else out of your mind and heart regarding moral life and eternity. 
He called this generation an unbelieving, perverted generation in chapter 9, verse 41. Why? Because they didn't let the words sink into their ears. And so chapter 9, verse 44, let these words sink deep into your ears. And there were even some, Luke records, whom the truth was hidden from because they weren't receptive Chapter 10, verse 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me and rejects not only me, but the one who sent me. And then Jesus prayed, I praise you, O Father, that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent. There was their cataract, their own wisdom, their own intelligence, and the light came and they refracted it away. They could not process it as light. Now, at this point, he'd said this to this woman, and the crowd increases again. So he's made the point that truth is our treasure, and now he's going to drill down even deeper and make the point that he himself is our sign. Christ is our sign. Notice what happens in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. Now stop right there. By the way, it doesn't just say he said, it says he began to say. That is, that is an indication in the text that Jesus started now to look to a formal speech. I'm gonna make a formal speech. So it's almost like he's saying, uh, he's sort of setting his face to the crowd and he began now to do it formally. The crowd gathered, Jesus' tone and content became more focused, more intense, more formal, more pointed. And what he's first going to do is expose that in the Pharisees there is a not-so-secret pride. They think it's hidden, but it's not so secret. They demand a sign from Jesus. You remember back in chapter 11, verse 16, Israel demanded a sign to test him. What kind of sign did they want? Oh, my goodness, they'd already seen so much power. They'd just seen him cast out another demon. Demons flee, the hierarchies in the universe flee, nature does what he wants, the wind and the waves obey him. He has tremendous power over disease and he heals and restores bodies and diseased minds and maimed uh, body parts. He just does it all. They've seen all those signs. Eyewitnesses to all of it. What more proof could they need? You say, what kind of sign did they want? Well, publicly... Publicly, it could have been anything. Hey, roll up the universe. Hey, um, now I know you can do all these things, but you know, magicians in Egypt could do them too from time to time, things like that. So you know, take us to God. Publicly, they would, they would challenge him at that level. Whatever you've done, it's not enough. We want more. So roll up the universe. Uh, burn everything. Take us to God. Show us heaven. Whatever it might have been, it had to be greater than he'd already done, and it was just a new condition. They just moved the goalpost, continued to move the the expectation. That was their public taking on of Christ. Do something greater than you've already done. But, But secretly in their hearts, the sign they really wanted was one, one sign. These Pharisees, these leaders of Israel, wanted one sign in the secrecy of their hearts. What they wanted was for Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah by acknowledging that they didn't need him as a savior. 
Prove you're the Messiah by acknowledging that we don't need you to die on a cross for our sins. We need you as our Messiah because we've been waiting for a Messiah. But the Messiah we are waiting for is our military leader who acknowledges our spiritual life and our greatness and takes us to the empirical kingdom with him. You come along and say that you are the sign, you are the savior, you are the one that we must look to and that somehow you're going to die and, and you're telling us to repent. What do you, repent of what? That's what they secretly wanted. Acknowledge that we don't need a savior and we'll, we'll see you the way that you say. If you don't, see that yet. Look at Romans 9 for a moment. This may help. Romans 9 verse 30. This is precisely Israel's problem. They had a secret desire in their heart that he would acknowledge them as righteous and not in need of repentance. Verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Paul says that Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness. That's right. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the standard. They didn't see their sin the way they should have. They were pagan nations just living in the liberty of their own wickedness. They weren't pursuing righteousness, but they attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Gentile nations were coming by faith to Christ, believing in the Messiah of Israel. What was Israel doing? Oh, verse 31. They were pursuing a law of righteousness and they didn't arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue the righteous standard by faith, but as though it were by works. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone like it's written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, that's just it. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. They wanted him to believe in them. And so verse 1 of chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation because I testify to them they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with real knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness. What do you mean not knowing about it? Not knowing that it comes by faith because you cannot be perfect on your own even if you have the law all your life. God is providing a way through Christ who's righteous for you. But verse 3 says they didn't know about that because they were seeking to establish their own. And so they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is saying, look, you want me to give you a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign because the reason you're asking for a sign is that you have in your heart a block to the light that's coming in. I am the light, I'm giving you myself and you're blocking it because you want me to acknowledge that you don't need my light. Jesus, by the way, back to Luke 11, calls this a wicked generation. That's right, they're wicked. They don't treasure the truth because they demand that everyone around them see themselves as self-sufficient spiritually. I'm not like other people, a sinner. How many times have you said that to somebody? You must acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Sinner? What are you talking about? I'm a sinner. Well, you sin, don't you? I, I make mistakes. Even if I said I'm, I sin, it doesn't mean I'm thoroughly a thoroughgoing sinner. Or they say, look, 
praised to some degree because I have some accomplishments that are moral and I'm morally decent. I mean, I, I work and get a paycheck for my family. I did all my life. I nurtured my kids. I did the best I could. I, I haven't killed anyone and, and I pay my taxes best I can and I, you know, I'm a fairly decent citizen. You know, I show up, I get my Starbucks and I go and help the old lady across the street. I'm fairly decent. You're telling me that all those years of all that decency, God will acknowledge none of it as worthy of his acknowledgement or praise. That's what you're telling me. That is not the light I want. That's what they were saying to Jesus. In fact, they were saying what people say today. Well, I'm close to God because of my spiritual disciplines or my family heritage or I attend church. Hey, look, they attended the synagogue. They, they had a lineage that was covenantal. You remember Luke 18, 10 to 13. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax gatherer. One was an outcast. And the Pharisee says, as he was praying, he says it to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer over here. I don't even know what he's doing in the room with me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Tax gatherer, Jesus says, was standing a distance away and he was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. That is to say that the Pharisee was willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. Why? Because he felt clean in and of himself. God must acknowledge him. And the outcast says, I cannot even raise my head to heaven. He's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Listen, what the Pharisees wanted from Jesus was a sign like that. You come to, down to Jerusalem, you acknowledge our holiness and that we don't need the Savior you say everyone else needs and then you go save them. Go save all the sinners. Absolutely, if you want to do that. Well, Jesus by the power of his own spirit and the will of his father, he says, I'm not gonna give you any sign. A sign will not be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Except the sign of Jonah. Notice, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. God has a sign for you. And what is the sign of Jonah? Well, Luke sort of abbreviates it here, but in Matthew's gospel, when this was talked about in chapter 12, he says what it is. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There it is. What is the sign of Jonah? A resurrected prophet to preach to you. Jonah, for Jonah, it was, he was angry, he knew God would be compassionate, Jonah hated the Gentile people of the Ninevites. They were a wicked city. He didn't want to go there. You know what happened. He ran from God. God swallows him up in a whale. He spends three nights in that big fish. He gets vomited out on the land. And it is, in a picture sense, a resurrected prophet. He's now resurrected to go preach to the people. And so it becomes really like a, an image, a sign of what Jesus would do when he goes to the cross, he dies, he goes into the grave, and he is raised from the dead, the prophet of prophets, the king of kings, to preach repentance now that he's ratified the new covenant in his blood, and salvation is available finally and ultimately. It's done. 
He says, you want a sign? There's the sign you're going to get. You're not going to get any of these other signs. I'm not going to roll up heaven, though he could. I'm not going to take you to heaven, though he could. I'm not going to show you any more of the power because your heart is so hard, the light is coming, but you've blocked it with your spiritual diseased eyes. The lamp of your body is evil. You hate the truth, and so you're going to get a sign, all right. You're going to get one more sign. It's going to be undeniable, the ultimate sign, the most powerful, life from the dead. And it'll be the sign of Jonah. By the way, the article is there, the sign of Jonah. That means they knew. They knew what the sign of Jonah was. It had been talked about. Jesus had made it clear. This had been very much a part of what Israel understood. You're going to see a sign, all right, Jesus says. I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights, and I'm going to rise from the grave, and I'm going to come out preaching. Just like Jonah was in the belly of a fish and was vomited up on the land and there was a resurrected prophet came out now preaching. That's the sign you're going to see. But if you ignore that sign, he says, your judgment will be more severe. And then Jesus does an amazing thing. He compares them in their spiritual eyesight to Gentiles of the past. The first one he mentions is the Queen of Sheba who he calls here the queen of the south. Notice verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So if you're just sort of jotting things down, we'll say it like this. A queen who treasured wisdom will testify against them at the judgment. Who was she? Well, 1 Kings tells us in chapter 10 that she was a part of a Gentile empire and she had heard that God's anointed king of God's anointed people was on the throne and was displaying such extraordinary divine wisdom that for her, I mean, she had soothsayers around her in her empire. She had the, the wise men of her kingdom. She had every bit of knowledge at her disposal in her part of the world. She had all that and every king and queen in the highest royal uh, empires had access to the greatest minds from science to every other discipline. She had access to all of it and none of it would compare to what she was hearing was happening in God's kingdom with Solomon. And so her heart was now hearing truth about a wisdom so far superior than what she'd experienced And for some reason, human wisdom fell flat with her. Human wisdom was no longer good enough for her. Even that which is at the height of palace life was no longer satisfying to her. She wanted something more. And here's the deal. She spared no expense to go. This is an entourage. This is an empirical royal family moving across the the lands to go visit a king. And it says here, Exactly that. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It is the verb for to to take in, receive it, welcome it. She didn't want to just sit and say, he's pretty wise. She came with a heart, an eye of the body, ready to receive the light, ready to have it produce the image. The clarity was there. Her heart was open. No blockage, no spiritual disease in her eyesight. She wants to hear it. She wants to receive it. And the point here is she spared no expense. Listen, what's the point to us and to the Pharisees standing in that crowd? Look, 
If you have a heart for the truth, you will spare no expense to have it. You will stop at nothing to eat it, take it in, digest it. This is what it should be for Christians. Yes, we, we get involved in sins that dull our mind and, and we, we drift into chastening from the Lord because we don't respond to truth the way we ought. But we're called back by the Holy Spirit as true Christians because we know that truth is our food. It's food for our soul. You have to have it if you're a true Christian. But if you are a hanger-on, if you are merely a professor, if you are someone who says they love the truth but you don't have a heart for it, there is a spiritual disease in your eyesight and when the truth comes, you won't spare any cost or you will spare every cost rather. You won't give any cost to have it. You will basically protect yourself. You'll basically shun the truth to to take care of whatever it is you don't want to pay. And some of you here today don't know the Lord and you've seen the light of the truth coming into the eye of your heart several times and it's just costing too much. It's going to cost you family and friends and, and your life and your, your idols and it's going to cost you yourself and you just will not die to self. You're like the Pharisees. And Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. One greater, one play on, one, one who, who exceeds exceedingly, one who Im, is embodied or the embodiment of wisdom. Solomon had wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Colossians 2, 2 and 3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love the way Alexander McLaren years ago said it. In Christ, he says, as in a great storehouse lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive ingots of solid gold which are the wealth of the church, all which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness, concerning eternal life, is in him who is the home and deep mine where truth is stored. And he goes on to say the central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is Christ, end quote. He's the central fact, the central feature, the center of all of it. He's the encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth. He is the the rock quarry from which the jewels come. He is the jewels themselves. And this queen said, I want it. The truth came in. There was no spiritual disease there. She wasn't like the Pharisees who had Jesus standing right in front of them. Wisdom himself personified the treasure of wisdom and knowledge speaking to them and they are saying, you're Satan. And he says, look, at the judgment, notice what he says. The queen of the south is going to rise up with the men of this generation, this particular generation. The ones who were there when the Lord was here ready to die for sinners, those in that generation. At the judgment, when I'm resurrected and the sign of Jonah is in your face and you can't disprove it, you're gonna be pulled to the bar of justice and the queen of the south, Sheba herself, is gonna be there at that judgment and condemn you because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom and something greater than Solomon is here and you're rejecting it. She'll be there. The second thing he brings up is a Gentile pagan city. 
He's already mentioned Jonah, so he's referring here to Nineveh. What's the point with Nineveh? Well, Nineveh wasn't all about sparing no expense to go find wisdom. Nineveh was all about hearing far less than the Pharisees heard from Jesus. Far less revelation, just a little bit, minimal. Minimal. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The preaching of Jonah? He was the resurrected but reluctant prophet thrown up on the land and all he did was tell them, the law of God says this, judgment is going to rain down on you, repent. That's it. He didn't talk philosophical arguments. He didn't... He didn't he wasn't forced into a debate where he could back you into a, a philosophical corner. He, he didn't engage in any of that. Minimal information. You're a sinner condemned by God. Judgment's going to fall. Here's your opportunity. Turn from self-worship. Turn from your sin. Embrace God. Throw yourself on his mercy and you'll be saved. It was a minimal message. By the way, the very kind of message that sometimes when a preacher says it, People say that's just too simplistic a ministry. It has to be cool and sophisticated and packaged a certain way. Really? Packaged a certain way? Jonah had no marketing technique at all. And as far as we know, he didn't talk about the miracle of being coughed up and vomited after three days in a whale's stomach. I'm not really sure he wanted to talk about that anyway. He wasn't wanting to talk about what God would do because he already knew in his heart the very reason he was angry is that he knew God would save them because God is a compassionate God and he hated them. He was prejudiced. He didn't like them. So minimal message from a strange prophet sent from a foreign land, miraculously coughed up, saved from death. He brings nothing but threats from God They're under the law. They better believe that prophet. And in fact, they did. The city. They repented. They fasted. And they they stopped sinning and embraced the God of Israel. (laughs) So you have a Gentile queen sparing no expense to have the wisdom of God. You have a pagan city, Gentile city, hearing just minimal truth and at the judgment. If you do not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they will be there, rise up, and speak against you about it because they had far less. You think about unbelievers today. Okay, at the time Jesus rose from the dead... The Pharisees themselves, his arch enemies, the ones who stood in this crowd and said, you're doing this because you're satanic. They're the very ones who then sequestered the guards and said, look, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say his disciples came and stole the body. They perpetuated a lie, paid them off so they, he didn't kill them, could have beheaded the witnesses, but they didn't. They wanted them as those who were actually there. They wanted witnesses who were actually at the grave who were paid off to, to perpetrate a lie. If he had the guards who were actually there telling a lie, that's much easier than to cover things up. So the arch enemies perpetrated a lie to cover up an actual fact they could not deny. And Jesus, by the way, appeared to his disciples on several occasions and then at one point to 500 people. It is undeniable. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years of the church age, people trying to disprove it, trying to find his body, trying to find a grave that's got bones in it that belong to him, trying to find some way to discredit what his own enemies on that day crafted a lie to cover up. What will the judgment be like? 
for someone from this era who will not take the light of the resurrection of Christ in, the sign of Jonah, but who has spiritual cataracts that are up there because they will not spare, they they will not pay any cost to know the wisdom. They spare every expense because they just do not want the wisdom. And the minimal message, no, they just throw up all kinds of arguments. You haven't proven it to me. You haven't proven it to me. You haven't discussed it enough. I need another debate. It is pride in the human heart that would demand such things of God rather than repent. And Jesus says it is because you have a disease in your heart. How how do you know? Your body, your life, your mind, your motives, your affections, your thoughts are beginning to manifest darkness. You don't receive the truth. And so truth is our treasure, Jesus makes the point of, and then he is the sign, and then notice back to what we, where we began in verse 33, your eye is your heart, here is the test. How does your heart receive the truth? So now this just sort of falls together. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The point is, when you get a lamp, you turn it on, and it lights the whole house. And so if the eye is the lamp of your body, when your eye is clean or healthy, your whole body then is full of light. But when it is evil, your body is full of darkness. Listen, you Pharisees, it's obvious what your problem is because the sign of Jonah is coming. Every other powerful sign has been given to you and you still reject that. It's obvious that the eye of your body, your heart, is bad through and through darkness resides in you. You have no gravitation toward the light, as John 3 says. Jesus is clear here. The whole person is a reflection of the heart. Whatever's in your heart will eventually come out in your life. We could say it this way. Whatever's in your heart is how you will respond to truth. It is how you will respond to the truth. When the truth is clear, it's clear light coming through the eye of your body, the lamp. And we're going to be able to find out over time whether you gravitate toward the truth, you love the truth, you, you, you would give anything to have the truth, go anywhere to hear the truth. You want the truth, and it doesn't have to be a truth so fully explained to satisfy all your human questions, all your emotional sensations, and all your, your experiential ideas. This is, by the way, why the word of God is superior to the human experience that you hold on to. It's superior. You hold on to human experience, you're looking for a sign. Don't do that. Your experience doesn't verify truth. Truth is truth. Whether you experience something and assess it a certain way and feel it a certain way and think it a certain way and conclude a certain way, truth is truth. You come to God's word and you do what the Ninevites do. You believe it. Because it's true. You believe it by faith because God, who is truth, spoke it. And your heart will be a reflection in your life as to how you respond to the truth. And Jesus makes the point here as well that the heart's receptivity to truth sets the course of your life in eternity. Notice, the whole body is either full of light or darkness. Verse 36, if therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it'll be wholly illumined. That is to say, it sets the course of your life for clarity. 
Clarity on every moral issue, eternal issue. No more blindness about those things. Satan wants to blind us. He wants to put blinders on, deceive us, take us down destructive paths. You come to the word of God, it clarifies. You do anything to know it. You study it. You, you, will, you will spare no expense to have it. And when you see it and when you read it, you don't throw up anything that would blind you to it. You don't put blockers over the lens of your heart. You let the light in. You let it in clearly. You let it say what it's supposed to say. I love it when somebody in the church says to me, that message that our, one of our pastors preached was so convicting, and I love it. <laughs> I love that. So gripping and humbling, and I loved it. That is a person who has no spiritual disease in their eyesight. Their spiritual eyesight. They're receptive. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 35, watch out. Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Hey, you take truth in and just fiddle with it. You take truth in and just mess around with it. You toy with it. You're casual about it. You need to examine whether or not the truth is something you will run for to get no matter what the cost and what you will believe no matter whether it's explicated at some deep level or not. You read it in the pages of scripture, you believe it. You respond to it. You're soft to it. You keep watching and keep guarding. That's the verb there in verse 35. Keep on watching out. It's, it's basically the exclamation point on verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it and guard it and make sure they're not allowing threats to it. Truth is our treasure. Christ is the sign and your eye is your heart and it will begin to reflect what's inside you. Sometimes when someone will come in for counseling, we don't know them. We don't know who they are and so we begin to ask questions. And, and as we hear their life and what they claim, ostensibly they typically claim to know Jesus or they know the Lord and, and so we begin to counsel them from God's word. And it is in some cases, it's not, not those where it's a genuine sinner under the chastening of God or gripped by some sin and we give them the truth and they start to work on it and even if it's stop and start and stumble and fail, there's, there's a love of the truth and a desire to really grow even if at times muted. But with some, you can bring the truth to bear. And as you bring the truth to bear, you begin to see that as the light goes in, the cost is too great for them. And they begin to argue with the truth. And then they're skeptical about the truth. And then they're raising up questions that are human questions, natural questions, philosophical questions. The Bible doesn't bother answering some of them. And they get frustrated They want greater proof. They want more detailed explanations. Not about a text, not about what God's actually saying, but they want you to prove to them so that you can push them over the hump of their skepticism. And when we begin to see that happening, we then tighten and narrow and intensify the discussion. And now we get down to the place where we want to say, hey, you need to watch about the light that's coming in. What is the light in you? Is the light in you blocked? Is it darkness itself? Or you, we'll even ask, do you know the Lord? Sometimes that alone tells the story. Do you know the Lord? What do you mean, do I know the Lord? You know, I, I prayed a prayer. 
I went forward. One guy said to me, I've always been a Christian. Grew up in a Methodist church. I've always been a Christian. What do you, what do you mean you've always been a Christian? You mean you were born a Christian? Well, my, my parents were Christians and I grew up Christian. <laughs> uh, we got to talk. Nobody grows up Christian. Grow up delinquent. <laughs> for sure. But nobody grows up Christian. You, you're born a delinquent. You're born corrupt. There has to have been a time when the light came in and you, you were like the queen of the south or you were like the Ninevites. There has to be one of those times. You may not recognize the date, the hour, but there has to have been that transition so that when I give you the truth, you will spare no expense to get it. And it doesn't matter how little truth you have. If it's the truth of Christ from his word, you respond. And we might say, as Christians, we have to think about this. I know when you're in Christ, you're saved. You're not darkness. Darkness doesn't fill your life. You gravitate toward the, toward the light, as John 3 says. But how often can we allow spiritual cataracts to come in, begin to block the way we receive the truth, and we drift into hard seasons? Why? There are seasons we don't want to hear the truth and God has to chasten us. You say, but I'm a Christian. I can't lose my salvation. That's true, but you will have no assurance during those seasons, nor am I giving you any. I can't give anyone assurance, but I'm going to open the word of God and say, how are you responding to the light? How is the eye of your body, the lamp, shining? Is it shining darkness? We need to take a look at that. Are you receptive? Will you go to the, from the ends of the earth anywhere to have a word from Christ? To have his word? When you hear it, even in its simplest form, does your heart just light up? I need that, Lord. That's an anchor for my soul. Thank you, Lord. You called me to repent of this season of sin. Thank you that you're a faithful God. I I know you were calling me. You were challenging me, pulling me. I knew it all along. I, I kept slapping your hand away, but I know the truth. Is that you? Or are you sitting there like the Pharisees? Who is this Jesus The Jesus they explained from the Bible, from that pulpit, I don't know that Jesus. It's not the Jesus I want. It's not the Jesus I would spare no expense to go see or hear. It's not the Jesus whose message of simple faith I respond to. I want him to prove it. I want a different sign. I want something more. I make demands. And if Jesus can't meet my demands, got no interest. Then in the judgment, who will be called to testify Who will saddle up next to the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites who got saved that day? Who will saddle up next to those who've given you the gospel over and over again and you've rejected it? Here we are 2,000 years after the cross. Who will be at the judgment of someone who hears about the resurrection 2,000 years later and it's been proven, it's stood the test of time, it is a reality, it's a fact, Jesus is alive. Who will be testifying at that kind of a judgment? Beloved, this is about receiving the truth. Keep guarding your heart. Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Respond to the truth. Run for the truth. Do anything to have the truth. And the the light will fill your life and it will be manifested that you are full of light and not darkness.
Let's pray. Lord, there was a time for all of us who know and love you that we just ran from it and you were merciful to call us in your truth. We deserved no better than those who stood there and accused you for we blasphemed you apart from Christ in our life. Even if we were religious, we did that. And because you have, for those who know and love you, given us the truth and, and by your kindness and grace, we, we would go anywhere to have it and we believed it and repented, then our pride is shattered and we're humbled by your love. And our life is filled with light. It's not what it will be. We still have all kinds of dark corners that you're shining your light of truth into, but we do gravitate toward the truth. It's a, it's a work wrought in you. We don't scatter from the truth because we love darkness. We don't love darkness as Christians. But Lord, someone might be here who does love darkness, but think they love the light. They can know very clearly by just dealing with you and your death and your burial and resurrection from the dead. That's the sign they need. It's all the sign they need. You rose from the dead and your death for sinners was affirmed by your Father. It was complete, finished, pure, righteous, sufficient. And by faith we can come and trust you and turn from self-worship. Lord, as you bring the light to dark hearts today, soften them. For those of us who know you, may we always think about how we receive the truth when it's spoken, when it's lived out in front of us by others. How do we receive it? Are we casual, cold, indifferent? Do we argue with it, stubbornly reject it from time to time, compartmentalize it, select what we want and toss out what we don't? Please forgive us for such foolish and childish behavior, such rebellious, worthy of chastening kind of things. But may we just embrace you, embrace your truth, love it, love the light, and let it fill our lives because it's not to be hidden. And we thank you that you are a gracious God in these things. So reveal yourself in that way with great clarity, we pray in your name. Amen.